Good morning. And I really mean that. It's so good to see you. Had a couple weeks off and I didn't like it. But I'm glad that you're here. And whether you're here or if you're at home or in a coffee shop or out in the cars, I'm so glad that you joined with us. If you're a new friend and you're meeting us here or somehow you found us online, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. We trust that you'll enjoy your time and are enjoying your time of, of worship along with us. Um, I want to get right into our, um, the Word of God. We're starting a new series today. Um, th- think about first words. It's the title of the series. Think about first words. Um, if you're a parent, you understand about first words when it comes to having children. You, you, your child's first words. Maybe you even remember what they are. Maybe you remember as husband and wife, mom and dad competing. Of, of where the child was going to say, mommy or daddy first. Um, I, I work with my little granddaughter who just turned one, and, and I know that I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to beat mommy or daddy, but I want to come in third. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to get her to say, she, the, the grands call me papa, so I'm trying to get her to say papa. That should be easy, but so far, no, no real success on that. Um, they, they tell us in literature that first words are vital. How you open, it sets the scene for everything else. That it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. That the first words in literature, the first sentence or two are supposed to grab and captivate the reader and pull them in. If Tale of Two Cities was too lofty for some of us, how about this? Once upon a time, there was three bears. Who are those bears and what are they doing? It pulls you in. Or or perhaps the best opening line, the best opening line of all literature. In the beginning, God created heavens and earth. Just pulls you in. It captivates you. They tell you in public speaking that your opening should always be something thought-provoking or or something that could be humorous or ask a, a, a probing question because you want to from the very beginning capture the hearts and the minds of the the people who are listening to you and pull them in I, I hope I'm doing some degree of that even in this moment in time because first words are important so this month um, for the entire month our series is called first words and we're going to be talking about the first words in the f- four gospels And you'll be able to tell the first words of Jesus, and you'll be able to tell what they are. If you have a printed Bible, I don't know what happens to the electronic ones, but if you have a printed Bible, it'll be the first time in the Gospels that you'll see red letters. All right? So we're going to look at the first words of Jesus through the full Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. And each of them, in their writings, in their recordings, they, they don't say the same thing as Jesus they don't record Jesus' first words across the board. And in looking at them, I found that each one brings a perspective that we can draw something from as we work through this wonderful Christmas season and month of December. So start with a book of Matthew. We're going to look at his gospel. It's the first book in the New Testament. If you can turn there, um, you're welcome to do the third chapter. We'll have to go all the way into the third chapter um, before we find Jesus' first words recorded by Matthew. Now, Matthew, um, 
It's interesting, in, in the ninth chapter, Matthew actually tells you about his own experience of meeting Jesus. He, he, it's, it says in the ninth verse that he was at work. Matthew's at work. That he was, it said that Jesus saw him sitting in the tax office and said to him, follow me. So he saw him sitting behind his desk and said, I think I could use that guy. He said, follow me. And Matthew left, walked off the job. And followed Jesus. It tells us some things about Matthew. First, that he was a tax collector. That fact alone tells us a few other things. Number one, it tells us he wasn't liked by anybody. The, the Jews hated him because he worked for Rome. The Romans hated him because he was Jewish. And, and everyone in between. No one really liked Matthew. That, that he, but it also tells us he was probably very wealthy. He was a wealthy businessman in his position because... They, they had some advantages as a tax collector that um, the rest of the population didn't have. It tells us that he was educated, that he could read and write, and even more than that, that he knew mathematics. He, he was able to be good with numbers and figures. So it, it tells us some things about us. That, and even though this position in that culture, even though it was despised, that nobody, seemed to, nobody really liked him, it was, it was nonetheless a prominent position. It was a position of, of prestige it was a, because it was a position of power. He knew people because of his position. He had access and he had insight to things that other people wouldn't have. Because of his position, there were powerful people who would, who would perhaps try to get on his good side because he would just set taxes and the level of people's taxes. So he, he had inroads places that the other, certainly the other gospel writers didn't have, and most of the culture didn't have. They, he, he was able to see and hear and know things that no one... For example, in Matthew's gospel, and only in his gospel, after Jesus resurrected from the dead, only he records the backroom conversation between the guards who were guarding the tomb and the Jewish leaders, who have just been told by the guards, Jesus ain't there. Here's what happened, and the body is gone. And it was in that scene and in that scenario that they cooked up this whole idea, well, we want you to tell people that his disciples came and took the body. Do you think that, that being a spin doctor in the media is, is new today? Listen, this is, this is as old as time itself. Spin. They put their spin on it. in order, And only Matthew knew that. Because of his position. So what were the first words that Matthew recorded out of the mouth of Jesus? We go to the third chapter, starting at the 13th verse. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, open your word to us today. Let our hearts be receptive. Let our minds be sharp. And I pray that through your word, you transform lives, that you encourage and uplift your people, that you draw in those who 
may be distant from you. Speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so chapter starts out, if you started at the beginning of chapter 3, and um, John introduces us to another John, to John the Baptist. Um, Tyler mentioned John the Baptist this morning in, in the service, and he referred to the verse in, in the fourth, 40th chapter of Isaiah, who, who the prophet prophesied about this, there would be this voice who would cry from the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He was talking about hundreds of years prior, he foretold the coming of this man who would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah. And his name now, we know who he is as John the Baptist. John comes to us and he's the last Old Testament prophet. Do you understand? The, the Old Covenant didn't end when you turned the page. When you read the last part of the book of Malachi, and then you, before you got to the Matthew, there's a, there's a page in between in your Bible that says the New Testament. It, the old covenant bled over until Jesus really began his ministry and in and, and, and his life and death and resurrection on earth, this, the old covenant was in play. And John comes to us now as the last prophet of the old covenant. It's been 400 years since there's been a, a voice of God heard in Israel, since there's been a prophet. And so he comes and he comes and, and, and with such... Um, verbosity that he, that he brings. He, he brings a message of repentance and the, and the nation responds. He, he leads a, a national revival across Israel um, because the people were so thirsty, so hungry to hear a fresh word from God. And so in the text, Jesus now comes to John out in the wilderness where the crowds would gather to be baptized by him, and Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now, this is the, the people at the time didn't know it, but this is an iconic moment. In, in church history, in, in our history as Christians, this is an, an iconic and unbelievable moment. We have two covenantal eras coming together, over, overlapping with each other. We have this, this divine unfolding of God's purposes and plan in the earth that, that are... That are um, Meeting and, and we find that one is an old covenant is coming to a its conclusion and 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 ushering in the, this new covenant that would be established through the person of Jesus Christ. The old covenant had well over three hundred. Some some theologians say over four hundred prophecies, messianic prophecies. That means verses, statements. Um, reflecting or foretelling the coming of this Messiah. And now we see this Messiah on the scene. The one who was sent, John the Baptist, to prepare the way is there, and Messiah has come to him. And these two are now in the same place at the same time. Not for the first time. They were together, same place, same time, one other time that we know of. And that's when they were both in the womb. And Mary came to visit her cousin Elizabeth who was pregnant with John the Baptist, and Mary was pregnant with Christ our Lord and Savior. And John the Baptist, in the womb, it says, was filled with the Holy Spirit, leaped for joy at the recognition of the presence of the Christ that he came, the Messiah that he came to introduce to the world. It was John who said, Behold the Lamb of God, 
takes away the sins of the world. Now, we can't imagine what John must have felt like in that moment. His whole life, his whole life literally from conception, was built for this moment. His whole life was built on working towards this moment and, and doing his, what God had called him to do. And we find that here it is now in front of him. I can't even imagine what that must have felt like inside of John the Baptist. The satisfaction, the joy, the excitement that he must have felt as Jesus comes to him. He had to feel that, that rush of even just personal accomplishment. That, that this, He knew that this was it because later it also records John making a statement saying, I must decrease so that he can increase. I know that the baton is being handed off. My time is coming to a conclusion because Messiah now is here. This is John the Baptist, and Jesus is coming to him to be baptized. And it's interesting, if you look at the text, in verse 14, John took exception with what Jesus was asking him. He said John would have prevented him. Now that word means to, to stop him, to forbid him, to hinder him, to, to, um, to block or prohibit Jesus from doing what Jesus came to do. I love the, the New Living Translation puts it this way, that John tried to talk him out of it. Jesus, you, you really, I think I misunderstood you. You didn't really mean to say this, right? He, he would have prevented him. See, and John's response, in all honesty, was somewhat reasonable. I'm not sure that most of us would have, would have not responded the, the, the same way when, when, when it comes to serving the Lord, when Jesus comes and enters into our lives and, and he makes re requests of us or just knowing who we are and, and who he is. John responds, he says, you, you need to baptize me. Don't, don't ask me to baptize you. I, I need to be baptized by you. You know, King David made that, made that statement, oh, oh God, who? Who, who am I that you're mindful of me? Why would you even consider me? Why do you even know me? Why, do you, why would I be on your mind for, for a nanosecond of time? When Peter, um, in, in, the, uh, in the, the, the room where they, the disciples shared the last um, Passover with Jesus, and Jesus got up and, and left the table, took, took a bowl and a towel, and he washed the disciples' feet, and Peter took offense. He would have prevented him from doing that. I, I need to wash your feet. You'll not wash my feet. I know you're Messiah. See, we, we would have that, that type of response. It doesn't seem like a, a strange response, but the problem was this, that John was misreading that moment. He was misreading what was really happening, what Jesus was really trying to do. He looked at this and he entered and, and treated this time and this conversation with the Lord as, as it was a moment about self-evaluation. You need to baptize me. I, who am I to baptize you? But that's not what it was. It wasn't a moment of self-evaluation. It was a moment of being called into service. Jesus was calling John to something. He was calling John to, to serve him in a very practical but very real manner. This, this was something Jesus had to do. And he needed John's help in order to get it done. So unintentionally, John was preventing Jesus from accomplishing the very work and purpose for which he came to earth because he misread the moment. And I guarantee every one of us in this room, every Christian, if you're sitting at home or wherever you are, we've all done, made that same mistake in one way or another. At some point in time, we've, we've done that same thing. 
See, Jesus comes and asks John to do something that, that in John's mind was so, so grand, was so out of bounds, was so um, beyond him, and to some degree maybe almost felt inappropriate or something, that John, instead of seizing the moment or seeing it for what it was, John disqualified himself. And by doing so, he was preventing Jesus from doing what Jesus came to do. Because John disqualified himself. And it made me wonder in my time of study and even so, some, some self-reflection of, of how much of the Lord's work is, is prevented, is hindered, is blocked, is prohibited because we disqualify ourselves when Jesus comes to ask things of us. Understand me. How much in my life have I perhaps hindered something God wanted to do in and through me because I misread the moment? John comes to, to, to this earth and he, he comes foreordained. He comes predestined. He comes um, planned and, and programmed and designed and desired by God. Just like your life. Just like you, just like me. Yet when he calls, often our response is based on our qualifications, not on our availability. And there's a difference. There's a difference. Abraham, I don't have a son and I'm too old, disqualified himself. God was calling him to serve him. God was calling him to do something for him, and he misread the moment. Moses, the people aren't going to listen to me. I'm a fugitive. I got them in all kinds of trouble. They still talk about me, and it's, it's all these years later. I'm from the smallest tribe, of the smallest family of the smallest tribe of, in all the tribes of Israel, and, and who, who am I? Mary, yeah, it's Christmas season, so we use Mary. Who am I? How can this be? I'm just a, I'm just a poor teenage girl, and I'm a virgin. How, how, how could this be? See, we, and we do the same things in our own setting, in our own ways. I, I, you feel an urging to, to pray for so I can't pray for that person. I, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. I'm not a church leader. I can't just go pray for somebody. I, I, can't, I can't teach the Bible to, to children. I can't teach the Bible to young adults. I can't lead a, an adult Bible study or facilitate a Bible study. I'm still learning it myself. Who am I to teach the Bible to anybody or share. I can't share my faith. What if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to and then they're, they're, it's just going to look bad, make the Lord look bad. So we have all these things where God comes with, with opportunity where he's looking for availability and we respond by reading the moment as one of qualifications so we don't qualify. And we prevent God's purposes from being done in the earth. I think that's a pretty serious issue. I think that's something we need to give thought and a prayer and attention to. Now listen, on the bottom line, none of us are qualified to do anything for Jesus. All right, let's get that out of the way from, from the get-go. It's not a wrong thought. It's a true thought. We are not qualified in and of ourselves. There's nothing in us that merits on any level to do anything. In fact, earlier in this chapter, John of himself says, there's one who's coming that's greater than I am, and I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes. So we need to get 
that out of the way, but we also need to now know as a foundation that if you're a Christian, you're called. And if you're called, you're commissioned. And which means whatever he calls you to do, you are able to do. Because God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. He's not looking for your list, your resume and your list of of skill sets. He's looking for your availability. He's looking for your being willing to enter and join with him to do his purposes, his work in the earth. And with his calling at the very beginning, at that moment of salvation, when Christ called you with his calling comes the power and the ability to accomplish Everything and anything he will ask you to do from that moment forward. It has nothing to do with your skills or your abilities or your assessment, your qualifications. Don't misread those moments. Say yes. When moments of opportunity to serve the Lord present themselves, say yes. Don't try to create reasons why you can't. Because whatever you feel, however you fill in that blank... Now watch, not only can we prevent Jesus by disqualifying ourselves, we can also prevent him by disqualifying disqualifying others that he's called. Isn't that interesting? When, when, when Jesus began to send out the disciples two by two, remember, he'd, he'd walk with them for a while. Now he's, he's giving them firsthand ministry experience, and he's, and he's sending them out. I guarantee you that there were some places that Matthew went. There were some people that Matthew went to bring the gospel to, and they wouldn't receive it from him because he was Matthew. Because he probably cheated them on their taxes. They didn't like this guy. They knew his history. They knew who he was. And he, he had a hard time maybe getting through to some people. Many hesitated to receive the apostle. Paul, greatest missionary of all time, many hesitated in receiving ministry from him because prior to that moment, he was a persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. He, he hunted them down. Jesus comes to earth, the perfect son of God, and people disqualified him. Philip goes to his brother, Nathaniel, and says, Nathaniel, you got to come with me. I found the Messiah. you got to come with me. Who's that? It's Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? Yay! No, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of, uh, out of Nazareth? Disqualified the Son of God. And he hadn't even met him yet. See, we do that. But thankfully, thankfully, God assesses people differently. See, we make decisions of of ourselves and of other people based on our assessment of their ability or their merit to serve the Lord. And in that assessment, too often, we we come up with wrong judgments. We we look at people or we receive or don't receive them because they're too young, they're too old. Oh, they're type A, they're just too strong, too bold, or they're or they're too laid back. Or they're too rich, or they're too poor, or they're overqualified, or they're underqualified, or whatever the standards we are, or different race, different culture, different history, different background, different experiences. Oh, that, he can't do that because I knew him when. 
and we disqualify not only ourselves, but oftentimes we disqualify other people that God has called, that God's wanting to use, that his hand is upon them, but we make our assessment, and in doing that, unconsciously, we overrule God. Thankfully, God doesn't ask for our assessment of ourselves or of others when it comes to choosing who he's going to use for what. He acts like he's God. Doesn't ask anyone's opinion. Listen, we would have never picked the people God has picked over time. Think, look at the people he picked. Idol worshipers, fugitives, social rejects, teenagers, uneducated, untrained, ill-mannered, prostitutes, cheats, liars. And then Paul comes along, writes to the church and says, Haha, of such were some of you. That's why Jesus never appoints or consults a committee to choose who he's going to choose for his purposes. Because we, we don't have... We don't have the insight that God has. Listen, most of the things you've undertaken in your life, most of the things that you've, you've started or gone after in your life, you weren't qualified for. E even the things you thought you were, you weren't qualified for, especially at the beginning. When you started that career, you had some training, you had some, but now you've been in that thing for five years, 10 years, 15 years. Look back at the beginning. You didn't know a thing. You're so, oh, Mary, Mary, you're so in love. You get married. You know each other so well. <laughs> Nine months into the thing, you're going, who is this person? And you're married now 15 years, and you look back and say, oh, my goodness, what were we thinking? We thought we knew. We didn't know a thing. Now we know some stuff. I promise you, when you get to 30 years, <laughs> I was an absolute perfect parent. I really was. I read the books. I did the studies. I, I could correct. And sometimes, God forgive me, I did. Kids, kids are acting up after church and doing things, and I had the answer for the parents. They just weren't asking me the question, but I could have helped them a whole lot because I was a perfect parent. And then Jeremy was born. <laughs> we're, we're just not as great as we think we are, folks. And to limit God by our assessment of our own or someone else's ability or qualifications to be able to serve God is, is just an effort in futility. It's silly. It's silly. And I think God sits in heaven and he loves to use people that are totally disqualified, unqualified for that very reason. So when they show up and the ministry and the gifts of God start flowing through them, we can't take any credit. Well, I knew that that was in them. I knew that. We can't take any credit. God chooses who God chooses. So what does Jesus do? All right. I don't want to put this verse on the screen yet. Just listen to it. Verse 15. Jesus answered him. Okay, John has said... Don't do this. I, I should be baptized by you. Jesus answered him and said, Let this be so now, for thus it's fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. That sounds good, doesn't it? 
It, it sounds right that Jesus would say that's what he came to do, fulfill all righteousness. That's, that was his, his mission and purpose. He came to, to fulfill the, and satisfy all the requirements of God, all the demands of God, all the expectations of God. He came as a man to fulfill all those. Why? So that he could be our substitute so that he could be the Messiah, so he could be the one who would open the door again where we could have access back to the Father, where he could come and Jesus could be the Savior of the world. John, John, this is necessary. Jesus is saying, John, this is necessary so I can accomplish the work I came to do. And and so that the the, the verse read, that, that just makes sense to us, that it's fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. The problem is that's not what he said. Let's put it up now. Verse 15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for for who? Who? Who's talking? Jesus is talking. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Listen, what do you do with that? That changes everything. That puts a whole new slant on this verse. And if we read by it too quickly, I think we come away just thinking as if he had said just me. Because, yeah, it makes sense. Jesus came to do that. But, no, he said, he said, us, why on earth would he say that? It made more sense, really, when it just said me. Well, there's a, there's a theological and there's a practical answer that I can give you. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to just try to fly by the, the first one and, and finish my time using and sitting on the second one, okay? The, the, what, what does that mean? It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. No, theologically... Um, by being baptized by John, Jesus was actually modeling what he came to do. Remember, I, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. He, he came to give his life. Jesus came to die for our sin. And so in water baptism, he is, he is in a very graphic, physical way, he's prophesying what he came to do. His death, his burial, his resurrection is all there in the act of water baptism. Jesus knew what his mission was. He knew what he came to do. He knew what it was going to cost him. He knew what was going to be involved. He knew the price that had to be paid, but he loved us so much that he came anyway. And we see that all exemplified in the request that he's making of John the Baptist. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He was also showing us something else from a theological standpoint. He was telling us and showing and saying, here's what the price of discipleship is going to look like. You're going to, you're going to follow me? You're going to be a Christian, really? Okay, well, I want you to know something, that we're going to fill all, all, all righteousness. Now, that doesn't mean that we can, we can do anything about what only Jesus could do in fulfilling righteousness as far as the cross and the blood and the sacrifice. That, that, was all, that was all him. But he's showing us something else. Jesus told his disciples, actually, Matthew records it in his 16th chapter of his, of his book. Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, let him follow me. You're going to have to, John, you want to be my follower. You, there's a cost to being a disciple. There's a price to, to, that has to be paid if you're going to really follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he's saying to us that following him is going to cost us something. What's it going to co- it's going to cost us our life. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2, 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. 
But it's no longer I'm who lived, but it's Christ that's in me. He's talking about this same process. Paul saw himself as dead to self, but alive to the person of Jesus Christ. And that the life that he lived now physically and naturally on this earth, he lived for Christ. That the life of Christ that was in him would be lived through him. That's why water baptism is still a sacrament of the church today. Because it's a public declaration. It's an external, um, outward expression of an inward change. That my life is no longer my own. That I have been, I am now dead to sin and, my, and buried with Christ. And I'm also resurrected to a new life in Christ. And now my life is lived for him. And his life is lived through me. We see that in what Jesus is asking of John. Now, practically... What can we take home? What can we take home and and not only just think about, what can we actually do? What can we implement into our lives? It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This this thing that Jesus comes and offers to John is a tremendous opportunity. John, I'm inviting you to be a part of my purposes in the earth. I'm inviting you to, to, to be a part of what I'm trying to do and accomplish. You know, last month, Pastor Jeremy just finished a, a great series called Joining Jesus. He's offering that to John. Jesus is saying, John, I want you to join me. 